Well, well good morning. morning. When you're looking for a person to get something done right, when you need something done well or well executed, what type of person do you look for? <laughs> we usually look for a leader, right? And so when you look for a leader, what type of characteristics specifically do you look for in this leader? Some people like them strong. They want them reliable. Someone who has determination. Someone who sets a goal or has vision. When looking for leaders, a lot of times people look for specific professions. Right? We sometimes think that Navy SEALs or Green Berets, they're the best of the best. They're physically strong, they're mentally strong, they're disciplined, they're hardworking, and they'd be a good example of what a leader should be. Other considered lawyers good leaders. They know the law. Sometimes they know how to get around the law. Um, they are analytical. They read a lot. And contrary to what my wife says, they can be argumentative. Uh, others think that doctors might be good leaders. They're smart. They study a lot. They're quick learners. They handle a lot of stress and they deal with people's lives. And you can name a number of professions that might fit into this category. Astronauts, accountants, architects, managers, even stay-at-home moms. They're all problem solvers. They look to the future and they try to figure out, okay, how can I figure this problem out? When you want something done right, when you cannot make a mistake, who do you call? You want a leader with all the right qualities, but I would argue that leadership from a worldly perspective is often very vague. It's unclear. It's ambiguous. And the world defines leadership in many different ways. I looked at the Harvard Continuing Education Department website. According to a recent survey, they said that there are more than 15,000 books on leadership in print. Articles on leadership number in the thousands. And these characteristics, often they're confusing and often they're contradictory, right? Because you think sometimes they say you should be a team player. And then other times they say you should really work on your own self. Other times they say you need to be a hard worker. Other people say you need to really be balanced. Some people say you got to wake up late. Some people say you got to wake up early. Other people say you got to focus on the macro, the bigger picture. Other articles say you got to focus on the micro or the, min the minor little details. You could be smart, but don't be too smart to intimidate a lot of your employees. Leadership is a very popular subject that I believe the world provides very little clarity for. So I want to take you back to a time in which God was establishing his church, a time in which the word of God was starting to spread and churches were growing and people were becoming Christians and God needed to find his own leaders, a.k.a. elders, pastors, overseers, to grow and to run his church. And when he was looking for leaders to care for his people, to grow the flock, to teach them, to protect them, and to enter into what arguably was the most important part of his flock, into their minds, into their hearts, into their souls, what leaders, what characteristics did he exactly look for? You'd think naturally it'd be someone who wasn't shy, right? It'd be someone who maybe was well-connected and had a good network in that day and age, someone with a lot of money to print Bibles, someone who was in power so they could get laws passed, someone who was a really good debater so that they could convince you that the Bible was real at a time in which the Bible was just starting to spread. You would think that these were the natural people that he would look for, and they were not. 
God gave very specific instructions into who exactly his leaders, his elders, his pastors were to be. Right? This was an intense burden. This was a privilege for them. And he wasn't vague. He wasn't contradictory. And he wasn't conflicting. There weren't 15,000 articles or books. In fact, he lays out 15 characteristics as to what he exactly was looking for. He gives us 15 characteristics of proper biblical leadership in the church. This started with the leaders then and it continues into the church today. So let's find out what those characteristics are in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. Please open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 as we find out these characteristics, oh so important characteristics of leadership. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. New American Standard Version. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, I'm in verse 8, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The biblical qualifications of leadership that are laid out here protect the church from incompetent and morally unfit leaders. We don't just pick people off the street. We don't pick people who are well-networked. We don't pick people with the most money. We pick people with the proper character. I just read you 15 characteristics. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 15 of them today, okay? We won't go through all. Well, today we're going to examine the first three characteristics and specifically three relationship requirements of biblical leaders. Three relationship requirements of biblical leaders. Before we get into those specific requirements, let's talk about the background that is listed in verse 5. Basically, today we're going to go through verse 5 and 6. But the beginning of verse 5 says this, for this reason, I left you in Crete. So who is I? It's Paul. After Paul is released from house retreat, so basically he's in prison, he's imprisoned in Rome, he goes with Titus and he travels to this island of Crete. Some of you know where it is. Many of you don't. When I don't know something, I usually pull up a map because I want a little bit of context. And so I've asked Phil just to put up the context for us behind me. And, you know, if you're a little unclear, it's always good to give us a little bit more mental image of where he's going from. So he's going from Rome. Right over there, you see where the boot of Italy is, where it says number one. He's going all the way to this island of Crete. And when he's going there, he's going with his student, Titus. And why is he going there? When he, when he travels with him, he goes with there because this is a place where there is actually many rebellious people. There's a lot of people actually trying to get a lot of money by putting up false religions or teaching false things. Paul even quotes a famous poet in verse 12 
And this is how he describes the people of Crete. He says that they're always liars, they're evil brutes, and they're lazy gluttons. These people were considered the worthless part of Greek culture. So Greek, Crete was basically an island where Paul had started to preach and there, where many Christians were starting to be converted. Churches were starting to be established. And guess what? He couldn't do this ministry on his own. He instructs Titus, hey, I need you to start to put in leaders. I need you to start to put in churches that are Bible-believing. And in this location, I'm going to, I need you there and to appoint elders to help me to complete this mission. So this is what they're doing as they go into Crete. I found this other picture. I believe it's in Crete. It's called the Church of Agios Titos. And it commemorates the appointment of Titus to oversee the Cretan church. If you guys ever go to Crete, or maybe some of you have been there, I bet this would be a really unique place to visit. Uh, it just makes it really real in which Paul is instructing Titus, hey, you need to start growing your churches. It'd be a really cool, cool place to visit. I just thought it'd be interesting for you guys as well. So anyways, Titus was to correct, thanks Phil, wrong doctrine and practices in the Cretan churches. Paul hadn't finished this task, and this is the only place in Titus, this is the only place where this ministry is mentioned. So let's move on in verse 5, and it says, His job was to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. I want to go give you a little bit of background into this term elders. The New Testament uses the term elder as a leader of the church, but he also used, it's also used in another way. If you look in verse 7, Paul doesn't just use the, ver- the term elder, but he also uses the term, you see it there in verse 7? Overseer. Overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos. Overseer was a common term that was used by the Greeks. It also was a common term that was used by Paul and other New Testament writers. Overseer was used interchangeably with elder. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul uses the word elder in a place that you might think he uses the word overseer. So these two can be often referenced together, but that's not the only place. Peter also references this exact location, or basically this exact role in his own book in 1 Peter chapter 5. He doesn't just call it overseer. He doesn't just call it an elder. Peter says to the elders that you need to shepherd the church by exercising oversight. That's where you get the word overseer. But basically, it's the same word again, episkopos. Peter draws on a concept meaning shepherd, and this comes from the verb form pastor. Oh my goodness, so many words, right? So basically, in these two passages, Timothy, also in Peter, the bottom line is this. The office of church leadership can be stated as overseer, as pastor, as elder, as shepherd. Okay? Did you get that? Overseer, pastor, elder, shepherd. Sometimes you'll hear those used interchangeably. You'll hear me say that maybe interchangeably as well. I am referring to the same office. A little side note, a lot of Christian churches will think elders are some sort of advisors or executives to the pastor, right? Elders really just have no uh, interactions with the body. Their role is just to advise the pastor. And a lot of churches adopt this kind of role. It's like the elders are a board of directors in a corporation, and the pastor is a CEO, and the pastor makes all the decisions. This modern view of eldership is wrong, okay? This is an incorrect view of a New Testament 
role of what eldership or leadership is. Elders in the church are to lead the church as well as the pastor. They're to teach and preach the word, protect the church from false teachers. They are to exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine. They're to visit the sick. They're to pray and to judge doctrinal issues. So they're just as involved as the the pastor because that's basically what they are. As an additional side note to this background, I do want to reference 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. There's two main places in the Bible, two main places in the Bible in which Paul lists the 15 qualifications, these 15 characteristics of biblical leadership. They're consistent, but I do believe they're also complementary because they help explain it to each other. And you'll find it in 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. You will hear me explain it uh, several times throughout my sermon. That's why I do want to reference to it. So if you are in Titus, turn two books back, 2 Timothy, then to 1 Timothy, as we go to 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. If you were here in my last sermon a couple of months ago, I talked about how Paul is instructing younger pastors, younger people who will start to grow the church. I talked about how this was instruction in how they were supposed to run the, tr- the church. And so he's giving them direction on why these 15 characteristics are obviously important. So 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. Turn with me as I read through it really quick. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, look, it says overseer, right? It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under the control with all dignity, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, so we will use this passage as a counter-reference to explain Titus chapter 1. With all of that background, okay, let's get into the three relationship requirements of biblical leaders. Three relationship requirements of biblical leaders. And the first is found in verse 6. The first requirement of a biblical leader is that you must have an honorable reputation with others. You must have an honorable reputation with others. Look at verse 6. It says, namely, if a man is above reproach. Above reproach basically means this. It means being above sinful things. It means striving to do well for the Lord. If you notice, Paul begins this list in Titus and the other list in Timothy with this exact word, above reproach. This is a general heading saying, okay, if you want to be a man who's above reproach, then you're a man who's known to be uh, faithful to his wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and so on and so on. Their work for the church, their interactions with all of you, right, should be of such of moral quality. It should be of high standard that we don't bring any type of shame amongst the church, but also in the image of who Christ actually is. Of course it doesn't mean that a leader needs to be perfect or sinless, right? That's absolutely impossible. Nobody can be perfect 
or sinless. But it does mean that you need to be above public scandal, right? Or any type of the legitimate accusations. Basically, they need to set the highest standard. So why is this? Why is it important that leaders set this type of example? It seems intuitive, right? But why do we need to understand it this way? 1 Peter 5.3 gives us this exact answer. By proving to be examples to the flock. By proving to be examples to you and me. One of the main reasons is because local church elders are supposed to be the example that the sheep are supposed to follow. They're supposed to model the conduct that we are supposed to mimic for the sake of God, right? So John MacArthur writes this, whatever the leaders are, the people become. Hosea writes, like people, like priests. Jesus himself says, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. You will seldom see throughout the entire Bible that a sheep or their shepherd will ever rise above any type of level, spiritually, above more than their own shepherd, right? The flock will usually never rise above that. In fact, they copy them. So if you see a pastor, you see an elder, someone who's really angry, or they have a fighting spirit, guess what? It goes into all of the flock. If you see an elder who's usually inhospitable, somebody who's really rude, it will flow into the flock. If they love money, then inevitably they will teach or they'll have the sentiment or they'll have the attitude in which their flock will love money. And most importantly, and this is why it's so important here, if elders or shepherds or people who lead the church don't hold fast to the word of God and they start to cut corners and they think it's okay, then guess what? It ultimately goes into the body. And we don't ever want to make uh, exceptions for that. And you see that from your own leaders. I would even just say from you know, work even family who are not believers or anything like that. Usually we think of this as how people inside the church view the leaders, right? How all of you, for example, may view me or view Pastor Roger. But what about people from the outside, right? What if people from the outside think I'm not, uh, I don't have good character, right? I'm a dad. I interact with coworkers. I see parents at school. I coach basketball, uh, my daughter's in gymnastics, so I meet some of them. I go to some mock trial competitions. I meet all of these outsiders. But does this passage tell us anything about how people outside of the church view me? Does my reputation also with outsiders matter? 1 Timothy 3.7 says, absolutely, it does. And it says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So absolutely it matters. But how does that work, right? Because people who are outside the church don't read the Bible. They may not necessarily understand what I'm thinking or how I might act. And so how does that work? Even Paul, right, one of the main pillars of Christianity, did not have a good reputation. He had accusers. He had enemies. He even said that many have opposed him, deserted him, been ashamed of him. Paul was called a violator of the Torah, an enemy of the law of Moses, a rabble-rouser. That's a cool term, right? This, a rabble-rouser is a person, I looked this up, who stirs up the people, especially hatred or violence. Jesus himself did not have a good reputation. He was controversial in the eyes of the world. He was labeled a glutton and a drunkard, Luke 7. A false prophet, Luke 7. A Sabbath-breaker, Luke 6. A friend of sinners, Luke 7. As insane Mark 3, demon-possessed, John 10, a blasphemer, 
Matthew 26, and I find this even offensive. He died as a convicted criminal with very few people around him who even supported and loved this man. So unless we want to exclude Paul and Jesus from being considered a leader of the church, it must be more than, when they say this quote, he must be well thought of by outsiders. It must be more than just, oh, he's a really nice guy. And you're right. It doesn't mean that, right? Basically, what this means is the leadership from the outside perspective that still kind of remains consistent, but you're bringing no unnecessary shame upon the office. There's no legitimate immoral actions. So I'll use my example in that. If I go out and I coach basketball or I go to my kids' uh, events or I'm I'm a coworker and they just don't like me because they think my volunteering is baloney or my views are repulsive, right? Like, how can you believe this book? There's nothing really legitimate about that, right? They just feel that way. However, if they know that when I go out and volunteer, that I'm someone who's usually pretty rude, I'm someone who's unreliable, I say something and I don't do it, I'm hypocritical, then that's when the church should take notice of their leaders, right? So there's no honest, true accusation against him. This instruction is for leaders specifically. However, that does not mean it does not apply to all of us as well, or all of you as well, for Christians. We, as Christians, do need to aspire to the same thing. So how does this apply? And I'm going to ask you this question, and I want you to think about it. What is your reputation among the people that you know? I would start first with the people inside the church, right? Uh, People inside the church, usually sometimes we have a filter. We might have a built-in understanding of how we should think or how we we might act. But hopefully it's all still in genuineness, okay? But one of the truest tests, I do believe, of understanding your reputation is what is your reputation amongst unbelievers? Meaning, what is your reputation amongst strangers, How do you act around unbelievers and strangers? Do you think, well, you know, they don't really know me. I don't really know them. So it's okay if I'm a little bit more rude to them or it's okay if I cut a little bit of corner here. Uh, I can act a little bit more judgy. I can act a little bit more self-righteous. Or does your reputation with outsiders or strangers continue to mimic the kindness and godliness that we expect in everyday living. So I'll give you an example. If you're wronged or offended, are you someone who forgives quickly? Do you hold grudges or do you make it a big deal and last it out over hours, over days, over months? Are you known as someone who's cheap or are you known as someone who gives generously? And I'm not just talking in terms of money. I'm talking about in terms of also presence, your time, your attention. When you go up and you talk with people, it's very easy to be very surface level, right? How's the weather going? Oh, how are you doing? It's good. It's not so good. Being generous with your time and your emotions means having an understanding to open up, right? It's an, having an understanding to mean opening up about yourself, about your life with the intention to develop a relationship with that person for the sake of Christ, We are all imperfect people, and we all have issues. We all have problems. And at the end of the day, we are here together to support each other in that. And so for us to be cheap 
with our attention and our time, knowing that we have the Bible and knowing that we have the word of God to support us is just selfish. Are you known as someone who has a good attitude? Are you overly critical and judgmental? Do you always have something negative to say? Or are you also, or are you known as somebody who's always positive and encouraging? Yeah, and just the little things, like if you, if, what does your neighbor think about you? Do you help them take in the trash, right? Do you call them if their light is turned on or if their garage door is open? Or are you just type, type of neighbor, oh, they're coming outside, I don't want to see them, I better just go inside really quick until they pass, right? So these are the type of little things that affect the reputation that you have. This is why I appreciate my wife very much, okay? She's very good about encouraging me to do this. We watch our own kids, but we're also very excited to watch other people's kids. She also likes to meet other new families outside of our school, even sometimes when I don't want to. Friday night, I just want to finish work, sit, relax usually, maybe watch something on TV or play games with my kids. She's like, no, we're going to meet up with some other new families. Fantastic. (laughs) When we go there, You're not going to know any other dads, of course. And I won't be with you because I'm going to be talking with all the other moms. So I'm going to be here with all the other dads. Okay, great. Do these other dads have similar interests? No. They are usually dads that talk about their emotions. They read books. (laughs) They like to talk about how the contrast of uh, Moby Dick uh, contrasts that of Huckleberry Finn. They like to talk about, you know, Aristotle. We, and we don't talk about sports uh, or anything on TV that I may understand or know. But thankfully, Diane says, don't worry, there's going to be food. But remember, it'll be all vegetarian because we want to make sure that nobody is being affected by any type of allergies. So great. It sounds like a lot of fun. So I do appreciate, <laughs> I do appreciate her in getting me to know our community as much or as little as it may seem. So brothers and sisters, let our reputation be a good one. In a world that teaches us to sometimes and often say, who cares about that? Let us, be, let us be the ones who have the reputation to say that we are the ones that care because it's for Christ's sake. An elder must have a good reputation with others. The second requirement is that he must be an honorable spouse. Is that he must be an honorable spouse. In verse 6, it says, Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Let's stop right there. The idea is, is that when God brings people together in marriage, it's a bond that cannot be broken. The idea here is this is a one woman man, a husband who is consistently both inwardly and outwardly devoted and faithful to his wife. It didn't mean that he had to be married, right? There's no requirement of that. It didn't mean that he couldn't remarry in case his spouse died or passed away. The idea of this passage is about the love and affection and the heart devoted to your own spouse. It meant this person couldn't be like a some sort of flirt, some sort of playboy, or some sort of, obviously, adulterer. Because since the beginning of time, Genesis 2, verses 22 to 24, God implied that marriage is always between one man and one woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It was very quickly after that that Adam and Eve messes all of this up, right? Right in the first, basically, marriage. That's when the lines become blurred. And then you see an entire Old Testament blur these lines, 
where you see Cain and Esau take more than one wife, where you see David, who had eight wives, and this is a man after God's own heart, where you see God eventually disciplining David because he's an adulterer. Eventually, you see David's son Solomon. Just very ironically, he says this in Deuteronomy 17, that kings should not accumulate too many wives. Solomon, for the record, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it's not until the very last book of the Old Testament that God continues to command this nation that monogamy was, was acceptable. Okay, it's th Usually people who take a lot of wives were considered very self-indulgent or sinful. And thankfully then, as Jesus comes, he explains marriage. The Pharisees eventually ask him about marriage. They question him, hey, isn't it okay to get a divorce? Because that's what you said in the Bible. That's what you said in the Old Testament. And Jesus answers them very clearly. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you from the beginning of creation. God made the male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let no one separate. He makes very clear that that should not be separated. Then again, disciples ask him, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And she divorces her husband and marries another. If she does that, then she commits adultery. Jesus' moral teaching on marriage was meant to be a reminder of the marriage that Jesus and how Jesus loved his bride, the church. Jesus is the groom, and the bride was the church. So it was supposed to be symbolic of that. You don't hear of any separation from that. What's really interesting, I believe, is that God's standards on human sexuality is treated in Scripture as some of the most important rules for all of us to follow. And I would say, you know, it obviously applies if you're married, but it should apply even in your own singleness. But in the Old Testament, what's emphasized next to idolatry most frequently is teaching against adultery. Adultery is emphasized second only to idolatry, and I should say teaching against adult adultery. So Paul includes in all, he, he lists in a number of places sexual sins, or a list of sins, in all of those places, he always lists sexual sins because he knows that this is a danger for men and for women. In both of these lists, right, in Titus and Timothy, after he says above reproach immediately, what's the first characteristic he mentions? The husband of one wife. Protecting our marriages in the church, I would say, is of utmost importance because, el because I would say even for elders and even for all of us, sexual sin doesn't just start off like we're going to go cheat on somebody. It starts as an intimacy outside of the marriage relationship in any number of ways, right? It could be with another person, but oftentimes it's just through entertainment. It's what you look on your phone. It's, what, it's the, the, the people that you spend time with. It's when all of these types of things start to take away attention from one of the spouses, and then that's when an intimacy outside of the marriage begins to develop. So if you are married, do everything in your power to make sure you care for your loved one. And if you're a spouse, do everything you can to make sure that you are pers a person that obviously is easily and obviously wants to be cared for. 
I know that marriage can be difficult. I haven't been married as long as some of you here, but I know it can be difficult. We have uh, arguments. We have disagreements. There's often, you know, unresentment. Uh, there's often unforgiveness. There's resentment. And all of these are areas in which Satan breeds. All of these areas are soil in which Satan breeds um, basically an okayness for us to think that our marriages are falling apart. However, I do have some good news because oftentimes we always hear of the negative things of marriage. We've heard that half of the marriages end in divorce. We've heard the pandemic was brutal for marriages. Divorce has been rising for years. Churchgoers don't do any better at marriage. There's good news, okay? So there's a lot of for us to work on. However, what is interesting is focus on the family, did an eight-year investigative study on marriage and divorce statistics, and they resulted and they published a book called The Good News About Marriage. And I wanted to read a couple of debunking myths because I don't want us to believe that marriage is something that, you know, is forever turmoil or forever pain for all of us. There is encouragement in this. The actual divorce rate for society as a whole has never been close to 50%. Rather, as rather, and rather than increasing, as many people think, the rate has been declining for decades. Divorce rates continue to fall. In 2019, the most recent year for this statistic here, the divorce rate declined to levels not seen in 50 years, with only about 15 marriages in every 1,000 resulting in divorce. This is a 34% fall from the 90s. I'm sorry, from the 80s. <laughs> Most marriages continue to be happy. This was true even during the pandemic. A 2021 poll found that 92% of married couples were either extremely or very satisfied in their marriages. And the percent of those who were extremely satisfied rose 14% during the pandemic or shutdowns. Amazing, right? During the uh, pandemics. And finally, a third one, divorce continues to be lower in the church. As they detail in the book, the belief otherwise the original belief that there was no difference in the church was that they didn't look at the people who actually attended church. They didn't look at the church attendance of people. Research continues to consistently show that divorce rates are significantly lower among those who actually attend church. And why is that? It's because a lot of the times I would say the world would say you're just dealing or you're just maintaining your marriage relationship through 30, 40, 50 years. And at the end of 50 years, uh, you know, we've fallen out of love or we don't see each other in a new light. The beauty of a marriage in the church is that you understand that your spouse is not only a believer of God, but is someone who is renewed every day in the sanctification of God's work. This is somebody who will continue to get better and better for the sake of Christ. And what do you have on the other side? When you continue to commit wrong, when you continue to do something bad, you do have a spouse who has an understanding heart, hopefully, an understanding heart to encourage you to go straight, to go come back to where the Bible is saying. And I'll, and I'll just say this. Satan is, it's every, it's every desire for Satan to basically ruin our marriages, right? And especially those of people of leadership in the church. This is his most effective strategy. Because we know that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life take us away from these things. And, and, and let me just say this as a side note, because sometimes I like to rant about this. But I do believe that as effective as cell phones actually are for us, they can be a very dangerous tool in our marriages. It's very obvious that cell phones can be used to look at inappropriate pictures, to look at pornography, to look at things that 
distort what our spouses either should be or are. But also, cell phones take us away from taking the time to talk with our significant others, right? We get used to looking at our cell phones and not talking to our spouses. We get used to not talking to people because we feel as if we are busy enough when we're looking at the cell phone. Additionally, I do believe the cell phone can sometimes lead us to jealousy. It leads us to envy because we see either people or circumstances or social media in which everything is perfect in some other family's life, and that's not a real depiction of what a family has to go through. Finally, uh, of course, the cell phone can also lead us into doing secretive things that our spouse may not know of. It gives us a way to hide uh, ourselves, our personality, or even who we might be talking to. So don't get me wrong. I, I know that the cell phone is useful. It's very, um, it's good to keep in contact with people, but please know that it can be a very dangerous tool in our marriages. And I always want to help caution you against a, a good exercise of restriction in using our cell phones. I don't want just our marriages to exist. We want them to thrive. Uh, the elder must have an honorable reputation with his community. The elder must be an honorable spouse. And finally, the elder also must be an honorable parent. Verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and here it says, having children who believe. Having children who believe. This is uh, a little bit of a, a doozy, right? Because there's, there's actually two interpretations for this. One interpretation says that if an elder or a shepherd does not have a child or children who believe in Jesus Christ, then they can no longer be an elder or they can no longer be a shepherd of the church. Meaning, right, if Pastor Roger or myself have children who do not believe in Jesus Christ, we cannot lead the church. This is one interpretation of this passage. Let me explain to you why I don't believe that this is the correct interpretation of this passage, okay? The correct interpretation, and I'll lay it out here and I'll explain some of the reasons why. The correct interpretation of this passage is not whether or not children actually believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that the correct interpretation is to ask whether your children are actually obedient, whether they're submissive, whether they're respectful children in the house, right? And you contrast that with whether or not they're respectful. Maybe they like to go, they're off course. The point you're looking at is not whether or not they're believing children, but rather if their behavior indicates some sort of respectfulness, if they're submissive in the house. So this is why we adopt, and I believe this is the latter, this interpretation for a couple of reasons. First of all, let's go back to 1 Timothy 3.5. You don't have to turn there, and I'll just read it for you. But in 1 Timothy 3.5, it identifies an elder's qualifications on how he actually manages his house. Here, in 3.4, the elder is showing his ability to lead his family or to basically create an environment and a household that leads to salvation. Obedience and submission, we know, cannot produce believers, right? We know that the work of God, the Spirit of God, his choice from the beginning of time is what makes believers. Not anything I could do in my house can make and force my kids to be believers. However... It does say I can create an environment in which that can, in fact, thrive, right? If I create an environment 
in which I discuss the things of the Lord. I discuss the things of the Bible. I discuss the things of truth, and I make them think through that, then that's certainly more conducive for them to be believers than if my house were just chaotic, where I just had all kinds of drugs or alcohol or anything that's bad in there, right? Paul's basic logic is explained even further in Timothy when he asks the question, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church, right? So how will he do this? The home is a small example of the church. If God, if the, if the elder cannot take care of his home, then he cannot, theoretically, to go up, take care of something that's bigger, take care of his own church. In Timothy, the word that's used is not believer. It's used faithful. So basically being faithful children. Believer and faithful have the same word. It's called pistas. And in this context, in Timothy, as it translates over to Titus, I do believe gives an accurate explanation of what that is, that this is, in fact, a faithful child. We know that the work, we know that, or basically, we know that children may not necessarily be believers, but they can be respectful. They can be submissive to their parents. So going back to what this actually means, if the child in a house is out of control, right, there, there is just so much sin that it brings so much stress, it brings uh, so much tarnish upon the reputation of that leader, then that leader probably shouldn't be in leadership. That person needs to take care of that household well because you have many types of distractions. You have many types of things that are going to ruin your own testimony, but also you should probably take care of your own kids first. And that's okay. To require uh, an elder to have believing children raises all kinds of theological issues, not withstanding the fact that he has no control whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ, right? So if an elder, for, for myself, I'm have, I have five kids. If four of them are believers and one is unsure, does that make me disqualified, right? Or what if I have believing children and then all of a sudden they're unbelieving children? Does that mean then I need to step down? Or what if one is a, uh, what if one, um, they're, they're young enough, they don't understand, they say they're a believer, and then I gave the example, then he becomes a believer and then goes back and forth. There's all kinds of things that uh, are theor- theologically inconsistent with the Bible if we take that first impression. So this is why we understand that salvation is actually the work of God, not of their own elders. It is my job in the family to explain to them, though, the gospel. It is my job to make sure that my believing children understand what the gospel is, that basically they are sinners, that they are going to hell, and that just because I'm in the church or just because mommy goes to the church doesn't mean that you're Christians right away. It does mean, though, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he can take that sin away from you if you dedicate and if you understand that your life is a dedication to Christ. Meaning, I seriously believe Christ died on the cross for me, so I will live out the ways that he has instructed. And Pastor Roger, all throughout James in the last several weeks, I've explained what this looks like both in thought and in word. So the bottom line is you do need to be a faithful parent. And how do we do this? You just basically judge and decide what you want into your homes. As parents, we decide what we want them to see, what we want them to read, the people that they hang out with. As parents, we get to decide what things we're going to talk about with them and what things that they should be thinking about and how they should think about things. It's hard as a parent, um, but I was encouraged by one of the members in our 
congregation. God may not necessarily have destined all of my children or all of our children to be saved. And that's one of the hardest things for me to come to come across. But one of the most encouraging things that I ever heard in the church was from one of you. Uh, and they said that, well, maybe this is, wasn't God's will. And I want to glorify God in that. I want to glorify God even if I understand that my child is not going to, to heaven. And that struck me immensely because you are prioritizing basically God's will over your own will. This doesn't mean that we don't pray for our children. It doesn't mean we continue to instruct them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But man, what an awesome testimony that is. It is required that elders do have a household that allows for a conducive uh, environment for children to be submissive and respectful. And they can be even if they're not believers. This is the third relationship requirement that God requires of his elders and his overseers. We all know that elders are entrusted with God's dearest and most costly possessions, his children. And elders hold a position of authority and trust. He acts on behalf of God, and they often go into the most intimate part of people's lives, their hearts and their souls. They also have a lot of control over the doctrinal influence of where the church is going to go. So this is why church elders must be men who are well known by the community, by their marriages, and in their homes. When God wanted his church established and to take care of his people, he didn't ask them to be the strongest physically. Thank goodness for me. He didn't look who had the most money or well-connected. He looked for the people with the best and the most outstanding character. This is what God valued and he values now. At the beginning, I mentioned a number of professions, right? Lawyer, Navy SEAL, accountant, engineer, astronaut. You're required to have all of these skills in your mind. But from my own personal experience, the character part, uh, even when you take the bar exam, the character part is little emphasized. Isn't that a little ironic, right? It kind of flips it a little bit on his head. But basically, you're supposed to have all of these skills in your mind, but we never look and go deeper. And I would say it's deeper into the heart, right? The Bible flips this understanding of leadership that it's not just what you know or how to act, but it's really what's inside. And this is how God instructs us to value leadership and all of these characteristics. I will get into additional characteristics when I have that opportunity and hopefully the chance to come up with you again. But I do want to remind you that relationships are the gateway to people's hearts and soul, and God makes it a priority. God requires it of me, his leaders. He requires it of you as well. What a privilege. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks, Lord, just for an understanding of how you have chosen your leaders in these three relationships, but also even more so these 15 characteristics. We give you thanks, Lord, that you are not vague, that you are not unclear, but instead you are clear into what we are to look for. Help us, Lord, to just delve into each of these characteristics and just think about them and apply them to ourselves to be able to understand how to have an excellent reputation with those inside and out the ch outside the church, to be able to have marriage, a marriage that glorifies you, to be able to have children who are understanding, who are submissive, and understand the gospel. In all of these things, Lord, we give you thanks for giving us leaders 
who have a desire to do this both uh, at this church and also at all churches that glorify your name. I pray for the leadership even for our church as well, that you will continue to protect us, that we be able to take the church in a direction that glorifies you in just so many different ways that we would be able to be uh, involved in all of the flock and all of their lives in a way that encourages them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.